Good morning, Pioneer. I have been asked repeatedly, what happened after Dean Wolcott caught you in the stairwell? That's another sermon. (laughs) This sermon is part three of our continuing series entitled The Shot of a Lifetime. And we're going to start with some simple questions. For those of you that have experience with the Bible, just a few simple things to get started with. Help me out. Uh, The scripture reading that was read, Matthew 28, 18 to 20, is commonly referred to as the the Great Commission, right? Not just the commission, not even the commission. It is the, altogether now, Great Commission. There's a reason for that. Jesus here, this is the strongest statement that Jesus makes as far as I'm aware. Grammatically speaking, he says, all authority has been given to me. Now, on your Sabbath afternoon, if, when you get a quiet moment and you want to you melt some neurons, just think for a moment what that means. All authority. When you get pulled over for a speeding ticket, there is some authority behind that, Right? Uh, when we elect people as, as mayor, when we elect people at church, when we elect a, a, a county supervisor or a governor for a state or the president for the country, national, international leaders on this planet, and then Jesus said on heaven and earth, so the two there, think of the heavens out there, the worlds that, we, that, that, that are hinted at in Scripture, the spirit of prophecy says explicitly, all of those rulers and authorities, Jesus says, all of that has now been given to me, Jesus says. And the first thing that he does with all that authority, the first thing is to say, go and make disciples. Point being, if anyone thinks this is a mere suggestion, that God is, that Jesus here is kind of giving you multiple choice, you know, you can can choose the Great Commission or kind of the mildly Great Commission, commission or maybe the not so great commission, just whatever you wish to do. This is really important. Jesus here is putting serious horsepower behind this. All authority. Therefore, he says, go and make disciples. Now, that is the natural result of carrying out the great commission, isn't it? That there would be disciples, right? No brainer, obviously. This is what we were hoping would happen. If we, if we share the love of Jesus, if we seek to have other people to follow Jesus, our hope and our prayer is that people will become disciples and, and, did you know that there is another very explicit product of carrying out the Great Commission to make disciples for Jesus? Let me put just one place that we find this in the Bible. 1 John chapter 1, verse 1. This is the same John uh, that wrote the Gospel of John earlier in the New Testament. This is uh, the disciple whom Jesus loved. Do you know who gave him that name? He did. That's right. John called himself that. I, maybe John may have called other people that. That's quite a name to give yourself, isn't it? And a good one. I would love to be that too. The one, the one that Jesus loved. John here is going to write about 
his experience with Jesus. He says, that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our own eyes, which we have gazed upon and touched with our own hands, this is the Word, capital W, of life. Now, obviously, this is looking back to the Gospel of John, chapter 1. There, the, the, the Logos is there referred to. Jesus is the Word, verse 2, and this is the life that was revealed. We have seen it and testified to it, and we proclaim to you the eternal life that was with the Father and was revealed to us. Now notice what he's doing here. This is a form of discipleship. John here, in his own way, is seeking to help others to make the shot of a lifetime. That's the whole premise of this series here, the shot of a lifetime. It's not athletic achievement or becoming rich and famous and all of these things, as good as they may be. The true, genuine shot of a lifetime is to personally come to know Jesus Christ as your personal friend and Savior. There's nothing better than that. It's the pinnacle. It's the shot of a lifetime. And John here is doing his part. That which we saw, that which we heard, what we have seen with our own eyes, we have seen Jesus Christ and we are testifying of him now to you. Verse 3. We proclaim to you what we have seen and heard so that you also may have fellowship with us and this fellowship of ours is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. Now, time out for just a moment. You remember back in John 17 where we talked about Jesus there is is praying. He's praying this longest prayer that we have on record of Jesus, praying for His disciples and then He says, Father, I pray not only for them but for all who will believe through their message. That's us. And among other things, Jesus says, I pray that they may be, how many? One. As we are one. I and you and you and me. So the Father, Son, the source of unity there. John here is echoing that very language. Our unity is centered in God. Remember, unity is a location. It is at the side of Jesus' bleeding side on the cross. The crucified Jesus Christ, the risen Savior at His side. That is where we find unity. This sky-high calling that Jesus has called us to, John here once again ties unity and discipleship together. We need to have fellowship together, unity, that we might make disciples. That's what John is doing right here, expressing the gospel of Jesus Christ to others and including to us. And then he adds a third component. Verse 4. We write these things, the gospel, the good news of Jesus. We write these things so that our, what's that word? Joy may be complete. Now to me that's fascinating. Of all the things that John could have chosen, I'm writing this to you so that you'll become a better person. I'm writing this to you so that your marriage can be improved. You'll be a better parent. You'll be a better co-worker, whatever it might be. John here, what comes first to his mind, we are unified with the Father, with the Son, and hopefully with one another that we might make disciples and the ultimate product of that will be joy. And notice carefully, it's not just any joy. It is joy, that last word there, that is complete. In the Greek, it's plerao. It's this, this fullness, this bubbling over, this overflowing joy, not just mere happiness or a smile on your face, as good as that can be. Discipleship, he says, in the best of times, results in great, deep, abiding, overflowing joy. Could it be, present company again accepted, that in other churches that are not happy, it's because they're not making disciples? 
Could it be that the fights that take place in other churches out there are because we have focused on the wrong thing? We have not been focusing on the mission which Jesus called us to do. Because discipleship, John says, leads to joy. Now, let's be clear. Let's be honest about this. The fact of the matter is, is that as we learned last week, sometimes discipleship can go wrong. You might, the Halloween wedding, etc. You remember that? Part two. Things can go wrong. People can say no. We can be profoundly disappointed. We can invest all kinds of love and prayer and time and more love and still come up empty-handed. This is true. Let's be realistic about it. And, praise the Lord, John here pulls back the curtain on genuine discipleship and he reveals its deeper reality. In spite of the challenges that can come when we seek to help other people to know Jesus, the fact of the matter is is that there are also many, many times when making disciples leads to joy rather than disappointment. Which to me leads to a very important question. How do we do that? How do we make it so that we have the the greatest chance for, for joy, for a joyful ending, rather than disappointment? Let's do some digging. If you have your Bible, take a look, please, at Acts chapter 19, verse 13. Acts chapter 19, verse 13. In Acts chapter 19, verse 13, uh, we come to it. It's an interesting interlude because if you read the rest of Acts chapter 19, there's great things that are happening. The Holy Spirit's being poured out. Paul, the Lord is doing through Paul some amazing things. Miracles are taking place. People are being healed. And then comes this, this, this oddball story. Chapter 19, beginning with verse 13. It says, some Jews who went around driving out evil spirits, tried to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who were demon-possessed. They would say, in the name of Jesus, whom Paul preaches, I command you to come out. Now, pause for just a moment. The English here is a little bit, in my opinion, is not quite entirely conveying what's happening here. In the Greek, these are itinerant, essentially kind of witch doctor type people. They are not successful in their efforts to cast out demons. Do you remember when Jesus sent out his disciples? They come back and they say, even the demons submit to us. Why did they mention that? Because they don't submit to anybody else. So these Jews are charlatans. They're itinerant. They're moving around. Nobody trusts them enough to give them a home office, right? And so they're looking for something. Let's see what it is. Verse 14, seven sons of Sceva, a Jewish chief priest, were doing this. Verse 15, one day the evil spirit answered them, Jesus I know, and I know about Paul, but who are you? Then the man who had the evil spirit jumped on them and overpowered them all. He gave them such a beating that they ran out of the house naked and bleeding. Now, I'm no expert, but I would gently suggest that this is a disciple-making outing that ended badly. Okay, if I go to a Bible study and I leave the house bleeding and naked, that's not good. That is, that is a, that's failure right there, okay? And and I want to ask myself, you know, one of the the best ways to learn from the Bible is to ask questions of it. You know, try to, try to dig in, right, using this, this interrogative. Why did it end so badly? I mean, this is bad. This is not just mild disappointment. This is bad. Why did it end in disappointment and not joy? You know, from a human perspective, 
there actually should have been some things in these guys' favor, right? I mean, they might have been in the right place. Demoniacs need help, okay? They need assistance. They need Jesus, right? So these guys, we'll give them the benefit of the doubt. They were there for the right reason. Uh, Secondly, they did have some familiarity with Christian teaching. I mean, they referenced Paul, right? We don't know how much. I would like people to have familiarity with Paul's writings in in the Bible. I think that's a great thing. And get this, they were doing ministry as a team. They were unified. Hmm. So why did this seemingly well-intended and at least moderately well-planned unified attempt at discipleship end in disappointment rather than joy? (laughs) I think it's actually rather simple. The seven sons of Sceva knew Paul, but they didn't know Jesus. They didn't know Jesus. Three ways that we can best find joy in our discipleship efforts rather than disappointment. And way number one is revolutionary. This is mind-blowing stuff. The first way to best find joy rather than disappointment in making disciples is to be a Christian. Well, not a single amen on that one. We may have to back the sermon up. That's, wow, right. To be a Christian. Why do I say that? Well, you know, one of the greatest errors I think that Christians make when it comes to sharing Jesus with others is that they think it's all about technique. This is exactly what the seven sons of Sceva were thinking. They didn't know Jesus. These were not Christians. They were looking for the magic potion, just the right words to say. And they, they go, they hear this about this Paul guy, and stuff seems to be happening. Perhaps Paul even cast out demons while they were there by the power of Jesus Christ. They go, the seven sons of Sceva, they gather together. Hey, guess what? I heard the latest lucky charm. You got to say this word, you got to say that. And if we say that, great things will happen. Isn't it interesting? Christians will probably not engage in overt witchcraft But they still nonetheless believe if you just say the right magic words, people will get baptized. It's the same dynamic, just mildly toned down and passed to generation to generation to generation. If I just say the right words, if I just knew all the right things to say, then people would automatically become converts to Christ. Disciples would practically fall into baptistries when they walked by. Let me be clear. It is good to know good answers. Yeah. And it's really good to study your Bible. We need to know what we believe. Memorizing Scripture is a great thing to do. You know, when I was in 7th and 8th grade, our our teacher had us memorize 300 uh, quotations from Scripture. I thought I was going to die. I still remember those to this day. I remember when I first got into pastoral ministry, sermon prep was much shorter than my, than my compatriots because it was already in my brain. You know, this is a good thing. We need to know what the Bible has to say. We need to hide it in our hearts. And yes, we need to learn about how to answer objections to the faith, how to handle questions that people often have about Jesus and His church. All of that is genuinely good to do. But if you don't know Jesus... If you don't know him personally as your Lord and Savior, and then you, you try to, quote, share Jesus with others, you know, you may win an argument, but you'll be hard-pressed to win a soul. 
You may silence your critics, but their doubts will loudly live on. In, in fact, understand this. The number one killer of Christians and disciple-making is hypocrisy. You know, sometimes we look at evangelistic efforts and we almost say with pride, oh, you know, no one was baptized. You know, nobody does that public stuff anymore, right? right? Sometimes we need to look in the mirror. Maybe the problem is us. There's no substitute for knowing Jesus. You can't fake a real relationship with heaven. <laughs> you can pretend all you want. Maybe you'll fool your friends, but you can't fool God. He knows. And the good news is, is that he's not keeping you at arm's reach. He's inviting you in. He wants to know you. He gave his life that he might know you. Hypocrisy is a great killer of all things spiritual, so I just plead with you, don't let it happen to you. Don't let it happen to you. Don't sell a product. Share a Savior. Be the real thing. Be a disciple of Jesus. With warts and all, all of our imperfections, come to Jesus each day. Give yourself fully to Him. Let Him into every corner of your life. Spend time with Him each day. Pray, study, work for, live with Jesus. In other words, be a Christian. Because the best argument in favor of becoming a Christian is someone who actually is one. Walk with Jesus and be a Christian and you'll have the best chance of finding joy rather than disappointment when you share him with others. It's path number one. There is a second one as to how to best find joy rather than disappointment in your discipling efforts. Take a look at 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 12, verse 12. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 12. And we're going to go through verse 20 here. Paul here is speaking uh, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit to the, the church at Corinth. Uh, Corinth was a, 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 it was kind of like the Wild West of New Testament churches. There was all kinds of things that, were, that, that was wrong with the, the Corinthian church. And Paul here knew that he had to spend a fair amount of time talking about unity, about, about being together, working together, etc. This is no exception. Let's begin there. Verse 12, 1 Corinthians 12. Paul says, the body, speaking of the human body, is a unit, though it is made up of many parts. And though all its parts are many, they form one body. So it is with Christ. Pause there, please. If you've spent time in the New Testament, you are familiar with, with this metaphor that Paul is using. Christ describes his church as his body. He is the head. It has many parts to it. The members of the church, the worldwide body of, of God's people, they comprise the body of Christ. So let's continue on here. He says, For we were all baptized by one Spirit into one body, speaking of unity here again, whether Jews or Greeks, slave or free, and we were all given the one Spirit to drink. Now, the body is not made up of one part, but of many. If the foot should say, Because I am not a hand, I do not belong to the body, it would not for that reason cease to be part of the body. And if the ear should say, because I am not an eye, I do not belong to the body, it would not for that reason cease to be part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would the sense of hearing be? If the whole body were an ear, where would the sense of smell be? But in fact, God has arranged the parts in the body, every one of them, just as he wanted them to be. If they were all one part, where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts but one body. 
A second way to find joy in disciple-making is to be the unique Christian that God made you to be. Number one, be a Christian. Be the real thing. Number two, be the unique Christian that God made you to be. To state the obvious, we are not all the same. Who knew, right? Surprise. We are not all the same. Unity in Christ does not mean uniformity. Instead, God has created us with an astonishing range of differences that can be breathtaking and inspiring to behold. And capitalizing on those differences can go a long way towards finding joy in sharing Jesus with others. You see, when you go out to fight the battle for Jesus Christ and to share his love with others, you need to fight in your own armor. What's that armor about? Follow me here. There's a huge variety of things that can impact the unique ways that we can individually share Jesus with others. You already know this here, but there's where you live, and I don't mean planet Earth. I mean just like exactly where you live, the apartment, the dorm room, wherever it is your house. The place that you live, your sphere of influence, certainly that determines how you, how you reach other people for Jesus. Your, your roommate, uh, your, your, your next door neighbor, the people that you work with, co-workers, etc. Your mode of life. Are you single? Are you married? Do you have children? Do you have no children? Your later life, midlife, your personality, your God-given passions and pursuits. And into this unique brew that makes you, you, God says, I'm going to put a uniquely divine stamp. In fact, if we were to keep reading in 1 Corinthians 12, we would find what that stamp is. That stamp is called a spiritual gift. Now, spiritual gifts, if you're not familiar with it, let me just briefly explain. A spiritual gift is a gift from God's Spirit, the Holy Spirit, empowered by the Holy Spirit, and it manifests itself in certain skills and talents and abilities that are used to build up God's church. That's a spiritual gift. Everybody gets at least one, and I've never met somebody who only had one. So question, do you know your spiritual gifts? If you don't, may I make a gentle suggestion? God is calling you. Find out. You say, how do I do that? Ah, when Bill Gates invented the internet, who knew how great it was going to be? If you Google the phrase, online spiritual gifts test, you'll get a few options that come up right away if your computer's like mine that are pretty good. I do this every few years because, you know, sometimes you type something and it's innocuous and garbage comes up, right? I checked it last night and on my computer with my server, that's what came up and there were some pretty good ones there. They're free. They won't take you that much time. They take the lists of spiritual gifts in the Bible, 1 Corinthians 12, Romans 12, Ephesians chapter 4 and a smattering of other places and it helps you to learn how God has divinely gifted you to reach people. Now, I wish I could say more about this. We're going to move real quick through this part here, but I do want to say at least this. Many times Christians, when they think about sharing their faith with other people, they immediately think something like this. You know, I would do that, Jesus. I would do this Great Commission thing if, and then you can fill in the blank with the difficulty, if I lived in a different place. You know, the neighborhood I have, maybe, maybe it's not safe, so I can't go out and meet people or whatever. Uh, my hours are too long at my job. My boss is overbearing, Lord. If I just didn't have my boss, I could reach more people for you. And on and on the list goes. 
It is true that sometimes, sometimes we need to make changes in our life situation to facilitate sharing the love of Jesus. That's true. But could it be, could it be that before you immediately hit the eject button and write an excuse for yourself, could it be that in the mind of God, He has seen exactly where you are with all of its hindrances and obstacles and difficulties. And he's seen your personality and who you know and your abilities and skills and talents, the spiritual gifts that he's given to you and said, I've got him, I've got her right where I need them. They are in exactly the right spot to share my love with the people around them there. Don't bail. Stick around. God may have great plans for you. Which leads me directly to a third way to maximize your opportunities for joy in disciple-making rather than disappointment. I invite you to close your Bibles and open your ears and listen. They, the Bible is written to be, an, it's an auditory book, right? It was read in groups and people were to listen and whatnot. So just listen carefully to this. This is Philippians chapter 1, so we're going to back to where we were in part 1 of this series. This time, verses 15 to 18, Paul is speaking. Paul is in, in, under house arrest right now. He's in chains. Here's what he says. He says, it is true that some preach Christ out of envy and rivalry, but others out of goodwill. So two kinds of of preachers here. The latter do so in love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former preach Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, supposing that they can stir up trouble for me while I am in chains. Stop right there. Wouldn't the logical next thing to say be some form of condemnation of the self-centered preachers? I mean, we find this elsewhere in the Bible. It's not like it's never happened before. But notice what Paul actually says. Very next phrase. But what does it matter? The important thing is that in every way, whether from false motives or true, Christ is preached, and because of this I rejoice. (laughs) when was the last time there was a hypocrite in church and you went oh amen more of that please can we just can we have more people like that that are that are you know don't live what they believe and paul is what's going doesn't paul know doesn't paul know i mean this is scandalous stuff doesn't paul know that this is this degrades what christ did on the cross that god only works through that which is perfect how can paul believe that these selfish preachers preaching the gospel for selfish gain is anything but sacrilegious and yes scandalous i'm going to go out on a limb here and say that paul is right hard to argue with god isn't it when the spirit inspires Paul to speak there, I'm going to guess that what he says there is true. I believe it. And instead of missing the boat, could it be that Paul here instead knows something about God? He knows that God can use an amazing range of things to advance his kingdom. All right, ladies and gentlemen, two strikes, all right? Yeah, there's no amens on that. That was really quite slow, all right? Three strikes, and we're going to stop this sermon and go back to the beginning, all right? So here's the deal. I'm going to say it one more time. God can use an amazing range of things to advance his kingdom. Now, I know why you didn't want to say amen, because this, sound, this, this sounds a little risky, doesn't it? Okay, let me go ahead and put the third suggestion for finding more joy 
than disappointment in making disciples. Number one was be a Christian. Number two, be the unique Christian that God made you to be. And number three, be creative. Be creative. And this is why no one said amen. Dangerous door, Pastor Shane. So let me be real clear here right from the beginning, all right? Listen carefully. God is not calling you to start drinking alcohol so that you can reach alcoholics. All right, that, that, uh, that marijuana ministry you've been dying to get started? Nope, no, no, put that joint out. That's not what God is calling you to do, all right? There are boundaries to this creativity, all right? Let, let, let's be wise, let's be Christian. Remember the first two uh, suggestions here, right? Be a Christian, okay? So there, there's boundaries here. But notice carefully, notice carefully, Paul is saying here, That God is so astonishingly creative that he can take even bad things, not things that he himself did, okay, but he can take even bad things and transform them into good things for his kingdom. And follow me carefully here. If God can do that with bad things, why should we be reluctant to try righteous and creative things to advance God's kingdom? I'm coming to your house for lunch today. That's a <laughs> Let me just give you some examples, some modern examples of God's creativity. I mean, these, it, just, it, just, it just blows one's mind. Uh, story number one, real quick here. We're going to go rapid fire through these. Uh, true story, there was a salesman. Uh, he was in corporate sales. He made a lot of money, but it also meant he had to do a lot of traveling. And that meant that things did not go so well at home. He'd been married for a number of years, but by this time, he and his wife were on the verge of divorce. His family was, was fracturing. He was at a low point in his life. He, he's traveling out for business. He stops at a hotel. He goes into the hotel. He sits on the bed, despondent at this major low point. And for no particular reason at all, he opens the drawer next to the bed. What does he see? Gideon Bible. That's right. God bless the Gideons. And the man says to himself, ah, talk about insult to injury. Here I am, my life is an absolute wreck, and I get stuffed in my face here, just, you know, this book of fables and fairy tales. And then he starts to think to himself, uh, but I've tried a whole bunch of other stuff and it hasn't worked. Maybe, maybe. He goes back and forth in his mind. And finally, he says out loud, if I can find one thing that makes sense in this book, I'll give it a shot. So he takes the Bible, he closes his eyes, he lets it fall open, he takes his finger and he points to some random text. And his finger falls on what he would later learn was Proverbs chapter 27 verse 15 where it says, and I quote, a nagging wife is like a dripping faucet. Now, ladies, all of you that are, any, any females that are listening right now, you're fine. You are not a dripping faucet, okay? This is not, but at that moment, that husband was astonished at the wisdom of the word. <laughs> How did God know, he said. How did he know? And he kept reading that Bible. When he got home, he found a church. He engaged in Bible studies. He was baptized, and he later entered into the ministry. Because of a dripping faucet and a nagging wife. 
Story number two. Another salesman, very successful, making six figures a year. Uh, he had a little truck that he loved. And he would drive a little truck around with supplies. Uh, about lunchtime, he's traveling through a major cities, listening to the radio, as he often did, when an ad came on the radio advertising a local Bible prophecy seminar. And as soon as the ad came on, there was a sharp pain in his chest. Oh, no, he thought. I'm having a heart attack. He'd never had one before, but this sounded like what people described. He pulls over the car to the side of the road. He's, you know, clutching his chest. He's sweating profusely. The ad finishes and the pain goes away. Thinking he had dodged a bullet, wiped the sweat off his brow, drove back on the highway. A few days later, he's driving about lunchtime or so in his little truck across town, and an ad comes on the radio for a Bible prophecy seminar locally, and there's this intense pain in his chest. Thinks he's having a heart attack. Oh, I missed it yesterday. It's come back for me now. He pulls over to the side of the road. He's sweating profusely. The ad finishes and the pain goes away. A few days later, he's in his little truck and he's driving across town. It's about lunchtime. He's listening to the radio and an ad comes on for a local Bible prophecy seminar. And there's this huge pain in his chest. He pulls over to the side of the road and he said, I had better go to this prophecy seminar before it kills me. And he did. And he was baptized. He became a member of the Seventh-day Adventist Church and one of the more generous soul winners that I know of. I know because he's my stepfather. Story number three. Another gentleman, he was in sales. I don't know what it is about salesmen. If you're a salesman and you're listening and you haven't had your day yet, be careful because your day is coming, all right? God can creatively reach you. And this salesman, this salesman sold aerial photographs. He, he would commission photographs to be taken of large farms and estates and whatnot. Then he would go knock on the door and say, hey, would you like these beautiful pictures that I've had taken? He was really good at it. He was making good money. And he had an appointment at the far end of a county that he had not been at before. And so he pulled out a map, his car, paper. Do you all know what a map is? He had, we used to use them back in the last millennium. You'd get a... No, never mind. And so he's following this, this piece of this guide paper, okay? And he's following care... And it doesn't seem to quite match every now and... Oh, maybe I'm in the right spot. No, no. Finally, in frustration... I mean, it's starting to get dark now outside. He pulls into some random parking lot. And, and he turns on the dome light on his car. He looks at the map and he realizes it's upside down. He is now at the precise other side of the county from where he needs to be. Now, this salesman is not just irritated. He's just angry. Like, oh, I can't believe you. He hits the steering wheel, looks ahead, and on this side, there's a sign in front of him. It's all lit up. And it's got these animals on it, and some of them don't really look like animals you would see in a zoo. And it says, Bible prophecy tonight. He said, well, everything else has gone wrong today. I might as well go inside and see what they have to say. And he came inside. He sat, oh, two, three rows from the front. And he came, I think, all but every night after that. And it was my privilege to baptize Philip. And he became, I I think, one of the most gifted soul winners that I have ever seen. Because of an upside-down map. Final story. In 2003, the New Market Seventh-day Adventist Church in New Market, Virginia, on the campus of Shenandoah Valley Academy, was looking for a new senior pastor. The conference president's wife suggested my name. What about Shane Anderson? The president said, oh, you know, it'd be a good name, but he's got all of his connections around the West Coast. His family, his wife's family is there. Surely they would never move out here. 
And so my name was not put on the list. They went through numerous other names. A couple even said yes, but then they didn't pan out. A year later, uh, the conference president, you know, they do lots of traveling. You need, if you're going to buy your conference president a gift, give them a gift to Costco Tire Shop, okay? Because they burn through those things. Mile after mile, he checks into a hotel. It's about 1 or 2 o'clock in the morning. He turns on the television, and it's an infomercial. You know, if there are aliens that are looking for intelligent life on planet Earth, and they happen to tune into an infomercial, they will go to another planet, Okay? <laughs> Because this is not the pinnacle of, of human civilization, infomercials. But this is what's on at that time of day. And so one or two in the morning, this infomercial comes on. It is an infomercial for a home brewery. This is so you can make beer in your basement. And across the screen scrolls the words, Shane Anderson. Now, I just want to be clear. I have not, nor will I ever, own stock in a home brewery company, all right? This is not my company. But there's some Shane Anderson somewhere that did have a home brewery company, and he was advertising that. And the conference president sees Shane Anderson. Oh, oh yeah, Shane Anderson. Why don't we put him on the list? And that's how I became the senior pastor of the New Market Seventh-day Adventist Church. Now, ladies and gentlemen, if God can use these things, a random finger dropped in the Bible, a dripping faucet, a nagging wife, a heart attack, an upside-down map, and a home brewery, and some of those things aren't even good, all right? If God can turn them to good for His kingdom, how much more can He take our righteous creative efforts and do the same? Ladies and gentlemen, hear it and hear it well. If it meets biblical standards, if it absolutely does not water down Adventist beliefs, then do it. Do it to reach people for Jesus. Pass out literature. Bake a loaf of bread and give it to your neighbor. Hold a branch Sabbath school. Start a house church in your dorm room or living room. Send an email of hope to your friend 3,000 or just three miles away. Go overseas or just across the street and be a missionary. Deliver Bible study material. Mail out 25,000 evangelistic brochures or just 25 to people you don't even know. Tens of thousands of people have come to know Jesus in the Adventist church in that very way. Share your story in a day or over 10 years with your next door neighbor over the back fence. Put a God-directed bumper sticker on your bumper. Smile at people. Be nice. Create Christian art and give it away at your local library. Invite someone to a church event or to a community event so you can get to be better friends with them whether they ever become a Christian or not. Start a prison ministry. Become a big brother or big sister. Make a quilt with scripture embroidered on it and give it to someone who will be blessed by it. Send cards of encouragement to those who need it whether you know them or not and on and on and and on the possibilities go. Christ can use you. Christ wants to use you. And whatever gifts you have that He's given to you, He longs for you to reach someone else with them for Him. So let us dispense with any excuses. Let's leave them behind. Let us instead find the joy in making disciples that Christ longs for us to have. Let us be united. Let us work together. Let us work in the unique ways individually that God has gifted us with all the creativity that God and we can muster. And let us do all that we can to help as many people as possible to know Jesus Christ and to make that shot of a lifetime.